Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, a podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal, which explores tourism and tourism-related areas, recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Okay, on this episode of Tourism Geography's podcast, I'm joined by Michael Dignan, who wrote uh, a paper that was recently published called How Do Olympic Cities Strategically Leverage New Urban Tourism? Evidence from Tokyo. He co-authored that with Alaria Papaladporin. That's the one. And he is a recent colleague of mine, direct colleague of mine at the University of Central Florida at the Rosen College of Hospitality Management. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, as we uh, usually do on the podcast, can you just tell us a little bit about your motivation for uh, undertaking this research? So my motivation really was that over the last decade, uh, I've been working with Olympic cities, event organizers, owners, to try and understand a little bit more about how they can optimize the tourism development benefits of hosting these things, because mainly what we've seen in the last kind of, ten, kind of one to two decades is that we've seen the shift from functional innovation, which is building venues, train lines, infrastructural projects, um, to lowering operational budgets. So there's been a shift towards a more representational innovation, and that is about how you re-image cities, communities, countries, etc., which is particularly relevant um, in the context of Japan, which is a fairly kind of uh, new tourism destination compared to other elite tourism destinations. So they particularly used uh, this event, the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games, to not only reinvigorate their place and destination brand after Fukushima disaster in 2011, uh, but also to um, spend roughly about half a billion US dollars on a big branding and marketing campaign. Yeah, great. And this fits into the, your more broader work on events, particularly big events, mega events. How does this paper fit into that? Well, it's, it's, it's really looking at how do you get local communities to benefit more from the pre-event footfall um, and the hype that goes on in these kinds of events right through to on the on the day during the live staging, uh, trying to get people to kind of move around the city, have extended and deeper, longer stays uh, in the destination. And to do that, you have to not only focus on the event itself and the venues and the sports fan networks and all the stuff that goes on in terms of the actual event, but also think about how you represent the, the local culture, how you bring local people, local entrepreneurs, small businesses uh, into delivering an exceptional guest experience. And that is really one of the key objectives for Tokyo 2020 was to draw on that quite rich uh, traditional and new um, uh, cultures that they have uh, to draw on their what they refer to as omotenashi which is their legendary hospitality. That's one of the reasons why uh, they won the bid. That was one of the kind of core principles that they had. And it was about rallying the national um, support and population to deliver these great experiences. So it was really about how you um, package up what they have to offer in order to deliver that and to deliver a more local and authentic experience for, for tourists. 
Oh, excellent. And can you tell me, in this particular piece of research, how did you go about it? What, what sort of methods or approach did you take? So the methods, methods were completely qualitative. We interviewed a whole range of different people from the, the organising committee, the tour operators, people on the ground uh, that could really talk to the way in which the government and, and non-governmental organisations were trying to bring together what is really a disparate set of stakeholders in Tokyo and across Japan in order to deliver these experiences. There were, so there was a lot of kind of elite and in-depth um, stakeholder-informed interviews to try and get to the heart of what was actually going on the ground. So it's, in, in one sense, this work is a very practical um, piece of work to look at the specific initiatives that they did, the walking tours, the ways in which they developed relationships with um, Time Out, for example, in order to understand how they could articulate what they had to offer, the culture, etc., so that was that was primarily it, because ultimately Japan has a, a as a challenge. They don't have a long history of commercialising their culture over the last decade. So it was quite interesting to see how uh, through engaging with lots of different stakeholders how they how they did that. Now, readers of when you read the paper, you'll see that you used actually three methods of data collection. So there was the 26 semi-structured interviews. I think readers are fairly familiar with that, uh, with that method. Documentary analysis, also similar. But explain a little bit about this 33-day walking ethnography. So the walking ethnography was uh, something that we added in during our kind of time in Tokyo. And it was about not only hearing what the organisers say that they were doing and what the kind of documents and the bid documents were saying that they were hoping to achieve with uh, bringing in local culture and all the initiatives that you read in these policy documents. We wanted to see it ourselves. So we went into tourist boards. Uh, we walked some of the kind of key tourist bubbles in Tokyo to really look at and um, how they were kind of harmonising that relationship between these kind of more staged uh, spaces, but also how they're encouraging a kind of authentic and more spontaneous interaction with the locals, really. So that was kind of a key key outcome of that, uh, to really just triangulate what we were finding, what we we're reading, because a lot of the, the things that you read in these big documents, they are rhetoric uh, and, and, and trying to understand and try and kind of generate some visual data, I think was quite important for this because it's quite a visual topic. Excellent. Well, you get fit uh, as well as doing the research at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Mike, can you tell me a little bit about the background and context to this research? So as I mentioned earlier, what we've seen is a shift from functional to representational innovation because the budgets for these things have become much lower because host populations don't really want to spend um, a huge amount of public money diverted towards large-scale infrastructure projects. So that's a big shift that we've seen. So that's kind of a little bit of background in terms of the, kind of the global context. Tourism development has therefore become absolutely central. If you look at London, if you look at Rio, if you look at Tokyo, if you look at Paris, it's either because they want to foment, create a new tourism brand, or they want to catalyze an existing brand, or if they're a mature market like London or Paris, they're looking to kind of reposition themselves, to reinvigorate what they're looking for. So the focus of this project is... How do they not only take the existing tourist bubbles and the things that we expect of these places, but how do they integrate this with the quotidian, the everyday, the authentic 
what people are doing on an everyday spontaneous level within kind of communities, neighborhoods, etc. Because that seems to be a growing trend that people are looking for. Because we're currently we're currently living in this period of where we're finding more and more clone towns and more homogenization of inner city areas. And, and the big challenge for tourism developers, uh, governments, uh, communities is that they need to differentiate themselves. They need to diversify. They need to showcase what is special about their city, their community. And a big project like this can obviously help them do that um, exceptionally well. So focusing on visitor immersion outside of stage spaces, the back of house in some, in some kind of way, this blurring of one's cultural experience to try and get them to keep coming back to places. And there's no point keep kind of uh, flogging the same old horse with the same attractions, the same attractions. We, we need this kind of repeatability uh, for the future continuation of these, particularly mature markets anyway. Airbnb obviously has been a key driver for this, you know, getting people to live like a local, be in their local area outside of tourist bubbles. The big question is actually, um, how do you harmonise that relationship? So a lot of communities, if they're less familiar with tourists, they're, they're very much welcoming, like um, Doxyzeridex was, was theorising all them years ago, um, and that and the people have kind of argued since. And it's about understanding how you do harmonise that, that relationship between them, because obviously, if you bring people too much into their local um, environment, then you get some of the perils of over-tourism that we're seeing and the conflicts and skirmishes on the ground. So it really is always situated in its context. Hence the reason why this paper was probably quite well for tourism geographies, because it really is in its place. And that's that's something that's quite unique about mega events. You know, they're always in a new, new place. Yeah, it's important for readers and potential authors for tourism geographies to note that Yes, it's about tourism and it's also about geography, right? Uh, that's quite important. Uh, listeners might be wondering or thinking, I'd like to research an event. That sounds really uh, great. I'm interested in a particular event. But as academics, you know, we need to give it uh, some sort of theoretical conceptual framework to better understand how it fits into the, the larger body of knowledge. So can you explain... Uh, some of the concepts or theories that you used in this piece of work. Sure, yeah, there, there, there's three main ideas. Uh, one kind of maybe a little bit more kind of descriptive, one a little bit more interpretive, and, and then one a kind of a little bit more bit about how, kind of how events and why events are exceptional powerful mechanisms for what we're talking about. So first of all is the basic premise that events are simply the seed capital. Um, just because you host an event, in a local area, it doesn't mean that benefits are going to accrue. And, and that's a false assumption that a lot of event managers, a lot of scholars have, have, have fallen into, you know, just simply by occurrence of having the event, the tourism development um, and the, the benefits are going to spill in. Uh, that's not the case at all. So the, the basic basic idea is that they're, they're seed capital. And this lends itself to a more complicated idea called field configuring event which is the, the idea that events, a short-term occurrence, can help reconfigure um, social fields. Um, in this case, we're talking about the tourism field. Uh, and the key thing here is that it merges together Bourdieu's idea of fields and the um, more management and organisational science ideas around field theory and field logic and how fields just generally theoretically develop. And 
one of the key things that that that, that I want um, uh, listeners and readers to take away is the fact that mega events are exceptionally special for developing fields theoretically. But there's not enough time to to talk through all that. But one thing I want to say is that. Because there's this 10-year period leading up to when someone wins the bid, when they have to deliver it, you've got this symbiotic relationship between what we'd refer to in management literature as uh, symbolic systems, which are the visions, the missions, the opportunities, the promises that people who write these bids uh, want to achieve. And then when they've set those visions, and they're wild visions, they're multi-billion dollar visions right these are some of the biggest projects in the world they then get the commensurate resources to deliver on those visions and then as these disparate stakeholders come together in these contexts they then realize they can do even more and then what you've got is this back and forward and this kind of um, uh, progression uh, towards higher and greater and bigger uh, visions um, uh, when you're delivering these things which make them exceptional tools for policy development and field development so that is fundamental that that concept those ideas are fundamental to this case which is that in this protracted period before a lot of people were saying ah oh, how relevant is this research given covid but actually theoretically it's very very relevant you know don't get me wrong the tourism industry in japan was decimated obviously because of covid um but the general theory and principles apply which is that events even before they've begun have these pre-legacies as holger pruss puts it pregacies and and you've and that's because they're exceptional tools for field development um for those particular reasons so that's fundamental one and then the more tourism theory element to this is new urban tourism which is the idea that urban areas have become homogenized gentrified be very standard places are losing their place distinctiveness and so therefore it's about like i've kind of mentioned earlier it's about how do we bring in the quotidian the everyday the spontaneity how do people kind of peer behind the curtain without causing too much conflict? And the question, as, as Joseph Cheer, Marina Novelli have, have talked about, is this this harmonising of, of the tourist and, and guest relationship? But um, So that, that's kind of the, the, the three-pronged approach that we've got to this paper. Very good. All right, after all that, what did you find? Well, we found that because Japan and Tokyo... Um, doesn't have a long history. They needed exceptional support from the private sector in order to articulate and realise their visions. So they work with Time Out and other practical organisations that we find in other elite cities uh, in order to articulate, uh, to communicate uh, what they had to offer. And, and through that interaction with Time Out and, and the various stakeholders around that, um, they were able to access local businesses, local entrepreneurs, etc., who used Time Out with local uh, neighborhood tourist boards in Tokyo. It's very nuanced, and you'll find this in the paper, that every um, specific district in Tokyo has its own tourism board thing going on with its own kind of set of um, literatures and all that sort of thing. So that harmony between the private and public sector, as we've seen more generally across the world, but in other contexts, has been central, particularly because Japan just fundamentally did not have uh, the experiences um, uh, to, to develop that more nuanced offering. So that was one thing. The second thing is that um, Japan is going through a major change in its political economic ideology. You know, Shinzo Abe, early 2000s, moving on to the kind of early 2010s, it was really all about 
um, Arbenomics. It was about neoliberalizing, opening up um, Tokyo and Japan's culture and commoditizing it in some way. So what we see is that this is just simply a way in which that Japan sought to commoditize their culture in order to sell it as part of these new urban tourism packages. So that's kind of fundamentally one thing. So that's mainly the, the kind of key findings. Excellent, excellent.